Okay, friends, buckle up. This could get good. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 20. If you don't have a Bible, again, there's some in the back there. We have a lot of ground to cover, and we have communion today, so uh, no dinging around here. We're going to get right to it, all right? So, new series today, starting today. Uh, it's called Glimpse, and um, the idea is we're going to study a couple of parables in the next month or so. And uh, have you ever heard the, the, the phrase or the idea, if you really want to get to know somebody, do X? Have you ever heard some? If you've heard this phrase before, what are some of the things that you've heard? If you really want to get to know somebody, do this or take them here. Any, any, anybody heard anything? Oh, get in a fight with them. Okay. If you really want to know somebody, get in a fight with them because you'll figure out, you know, how they fight. Okay. What else? Travel. Travel with them. Totally. Totally. Or become their roommate. Right. You've best friends with people in college, and then you become your roommate, and you can't stand them anymore. It happens all the time. So those of you going to college, just keep that in mind. Okay. Uh, any others? If you really want to get to know somebody, friend them on Facebook. Get married. Yeah, there you go. Get married to them. Brush your teeth with them. Um, one of my favorites that I heard because I was a golfer was, if you really want to get to know somebody, take them golfing, right? Because all of the character flaws, all of the you know, little chinks in their armor come out on the golf course. And I would argue that that's probably true. At least it has been in my case. So if you really want to get to know me, go golfing with me, which is why I'll never go golfing with any of you, all right? Um, Here's the thing. I think that when Jesus tells parables, when Jesus speaks in the New Testament, and most of the time that we get him speaking, he's telling stories, he's telling parables, and it's my conviction, my conclusion, that when Jesus speaks and he speaks parables, that we get a glimpse into who God is, right? Jesus says in John 14, uh, this whole interchange with Thomas, Lord, we, didn't, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, or Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus ends the passage in verse 9. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus comes to show us who God is, and so when he speaks... I think we get a little glimpse into the heart of God. I think we begin to see the things that are growing in God's heart. We get a glimpse in, into who this God is and what he's like. The purpose of today, I want to do a couple of things as we start this series. We're going to look at a parable, but I want to do a couple of things. I, I want to, first and foremost, I want to challenge our understanding of Scripture. Now, I'm going to rattle the cage a little bit today, but I hope that you don't leave here totally rattled, but I plan to do that. Uh, I think we have a, a particular way that we read the scriptures, that we think about the Bible, and I'm going to unearth a little bit of that for you today. At least that's my attempt, or it will be my hope. Uh, I want to uncover, I want to try to uncover, get this, the Jesus behind the parables and or the parables behind the gospels. We'll unpack that a little bit, but I'll say it again. I want to try to uncover the Jesus behind the parables or the parable behind the gospel parable. And I think, uh, lastly, I would say, I want to I try to offer a glimpse of Jesus who represents a God that we may not have seen before in the parables that we've read. All right? So, why don't you read with me from Matthew chapter 20. This is the parable we're going to discuss today. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So, if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew 20. And I'll ask that you stand with me, if you can, uh, while we read this parable. It says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them out into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour. 
and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also, go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. And so when those who came who were hired first, they expected, but each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who hired last, hired the last hour worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work and heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? I'm going to pray, and uh, I'm going to pray a prayer that was written by a guy named Origen a long, long time ago. So pray with me. Lord, inspire us to read your scriptures, to meditate upon them day and night. We beg you to give us real understanding of what we need, that we may in turn that we in turn may put its precepts into practice. Yet we know that understanding and good intentions are worthless unless rooted in your graceful love. And so we ask that the words of the scriptures may also be not just signs on a page, but channels of grace into our hearts. Amen. You can have a seat if you will. I want to split this up into two things, two kind of categories today. We'll read the parable. I want to offer some some traditional interpretations and some assumptions that lie beneath those. And then I want to ask you a couple of questions because there are some unanswered questions for me in the ways that I've traditionally read this parable. So first and foremost, if you're going to read parables and you think about the ways in which we understand them and we, we, the lens that we see them through, I think you could probably say there's two major categories that we have read traditionally or read parables through traditionally. The first is one that would be called maybe eschatological or theological. Eschatology is really just looking at what's coming, right? So when Jesus tells a parable, we read it through a lens to say that what Jesus is trying to do is tell us something about the coming kingdom. He's trying to tell us something theological about what's coming and how the kingdom will work and how you should act in it and what you should do if you want to be a part of it. So one way we traditionally read parables is this eschatological or theological lens. Another that I think we, ought, we read through is one that you could maybe call uh, existential or moral. Existentialism is just like our human experience. So when Jesus tells a parable, we think he's trying to tell us something about the human experience. He's trying to tell us something about morality and how we live relating to other human beings. So true, very, two very traditional lenses that we read parables through. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that these are bad things. I think that for very good reason, we read parables through these lenses at times. One reason being that even the authors themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will take a parable and filter it through some of those lenses. Most of the time, it's theological. So I'm not banging, I'm not bagging on those things, but I want to ask, um, if, you, if you read this parable through that lens, here are some of the interpretations you might come up with, and you may have heard some of these before. Uh, one, the parable is about uh, uh, those who have come to Jesus later in life, right? So the, the, the people who were hired the first hour are people who have been faithful to Jesus their whole life. They've, they've walked with Jesus. They said yes to him at a very early age. They lived a long life. Those who were hired at the 11th hour, these are people kind of last minute deal, deathbed kind of folks. They've come to Jesus at the last moment, and it's just grace across the board. It doesn't matter when. You, it's just grace. 
Uh, so that's one interpretation. Another that I've heard is this. Uh, the parable is a, it's about kingdom principles. It's about those who are first will actually be last, and those who are last will actually be first. You've heard this phrase before, right? The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And actually, Matthew puts it in there right at the end. I didn't read verse 16, but it's in there. He says, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. So maybe that's what the parable is about. If you read it through this lens of theology, and Jesus is doing something theological, very, very honest interpretations. Uh, it, it could be about the parable. The parable is about the benevolence of God, the grace of God. It doesn't matter when, it doesn't matter how, when somebody comes and, and works in the vineyard, God's grace is on them and for them. Uh, maybe another option is uh, it's a proclamation of God's grace, right? It's, it's about, it's not about, you have a group of people who are insisting on merit and works and that, that they, they should get paid for, they should get what they deserve, right? They work longer, they should get paid more. And the parable says, no, it's grace. Grace doesn't work that way. Right? Grace is about you getting what you don't deserve, actually. And God's grace is, is such that you, you, you could come right at the last minute and still God's grace is for you. One scholar actually says, and this one I really disagree with, but that's okay, uh, the invitation to the vineyard, not the wage paid, is, is, is the moment that we experience God's grace. And he goes on to say that invitation, right, just this invitation into the vineyard, not justice, is the way of the kingdom. And if you've been around long enough uh, the last summer, you'll know that we've talked about justice and how at the core of the gospel is, is it's justice if it's nothing else. So, again, these are, some, these are some interpretations that I think we could get to if we read through one of these two lenses. You still follow? Are you with me so far? All right. Um, I don't disagree with some of these. I'm not trying to bag, uh, bag on these. I'm not trying to say these are bad because if you read the parable as Matthew tells it, these are some of the things that you get. But is there a common thread if you look at all these possible interpretations of how the parable is read, is there a common thread that's woven in between all of these? And could you nail it down if you tried? I think that there is. And I think it has to do with an assumption that we make right at the, at, right at the get-go, right at the onset. If we read this parable and we come up with any of these interpretations, we have had to assume something very, very important about one particular character in this story. And it's the first character we're introduced to. The word, and I'm not giving you this because I want to make you think I'm smart. You all know me well enough to know that I'm not. Um, but it's, this word is critical, and it's called oikodespotis. And it's a Greek word that we get landowner or sort of household ruler, that kind of an idea. The assumption that we make in order to get to any of these interpretations is that the landowner is who? God, right? He's God. So in this, in this particular parable, Jesus sits down, he begins to speak, and he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like this, which may or may not actually have been added by Matthew, that's aside. And he says, uh, a, early in the morning, uh, a landowner went out to hire men. So this is the first character we're introduced to, and immediately we assume this is the God character. And then everything else follows, because as soon as we say that this guy is the, the God figure, then, then the actions of the God figure have to be legitimated, and the actions of the, of the, of the workers, the servants, they have to be vilified, because things aren't, there's, there's a little tension between the two. So this is one assumption that we make, and then everything follows. You could say that the vineyard is Israel, that the denarius is salvation, the first workers are the Jews, the last workers are the Gentiles, and you could do all kinds of things. One person's coined it theologory, right? It's allegorical. Everything's allegorical, but we want to infuse theology into it, and so we start naming characters and this, that, and the other thing. But the problem is, where do you stop? At what point do you stop doing the allegorical interpretation and stop you know, saying this is that and this is that? Because different people have different thoughts on who's what and, and how far you go and how deep you go into the allegory. 
gets a little messy really fast. So one of the assumptions that we make is that this guy, the denarius is another huge assumption that we make. The denarius is a monetary term, right? So this guy comes into the, vine- into, the, into the marketplace and he says, who wants to come work at my vineyard? The first guy's in the morning. He says, I'll pay you a denarius. And we assume that the denarius is a fair wage in the first century. So for a day's work, a denarius is a fair amount to pay somebody. Because if it isn't a fair wage, then you have all kinds of problem because now the God figure is paying these people unjust amounts of money, Right? But that's problematic. Now God's really cheap and he doesn't pay people what they're worth. So we have to assume that the denarius is a fair wage in the first century. But research, and and as you dig a little deeper, you begin to find that it may actually not be. We'll get to that a little bit more. But let me ask a question here that I think is going to unlock some things. And we'll read the parable again and then we'll do some work. A couple of questions. What's the nature of a parable? If we're going to understand a parable, you have to begin to ask, what's the nature of it? What is it in a literary form? Or, or what kind of literary form is it? Uh, some people would say that it's just basic storytelling. That when Jesus tells a, a parable, he's just essentially telling a story. right? It's, it's kind of allegorical, you, you know, it has some meaning, that kind of thing. Some people think it's just storytelling. Some people would say it's a classic Jewish wisdom device. And so kind of like Aesop's fables for us, right? These are just big wisdom pearls or nuggets of wisdom that are kind of summed up in a story. Others would say, and I would agree, and I'll I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second, that this is actually a very sophisticated and subversive uh, linguistic device that Jesus is using when he tells parables. Some research has been done by a couple of guys. If you want to flip that next slide up there for me, Katie. If you think about literary uh, uh, forms of literature from left to right, um, two guys, uh, their names are unimportant. If you want to know, I'll tell you later. Uh, Going from myth, apologue, action, satire, parable. From the left to the right, a myth is something that essentially, it's a, and don't think about myth like a fairy tale, but think about myth in terms of epic uh, narratives that frame how people see the world, right? So for us, uh, post-Galileo, it's uh, one of the myths that we believe in, not myth, fairy tale, but myth that frames our, sh- our, our, our worldview is that we live on a, a planet that's round and that, the ce- that it's not the center of the universe, but the sun is and so on and so forth. So a myth is something that, uh, it's a foundational story that constitutes and legitimates our social world. Okay, moving to the, to the right on the screen there, apologue is something that illustrates and defends the truths of our social world. So for us, Aesop's Fables, another one. These big wisdom things, they, they, they fill in the, the gaps or they legitimate the myth, the big stories that we believe in in a social structure. As Americans, as Westerners, take it however you want to. Action then presents and follows characters through their world and explores the possible. This is the classic literary novel. Right? It takes all of the structures of our social world and it kind of weaves in possibilities and explores different things within that structure. Moving to the right again, satire, which we, you guys ever read Candide? You remember Voltaire's Candide? Satire is something that attacks or sort of uh, wants to shed light on some things. It wants to critique the world that we live in with subtlety and nuance. And these researchers would say that pr- a parable is actually one step further than that. It's something that's subverting and undermining the world and the structures, the social structures that exist. And it wants to actually poke holes in it and undermine and subvert it. So if that's true, 
If a parable is not just a story, if a parable is something like this, and, and in the first century, scholarly research would say this is exactly what parables were doing in the first century, then when Jesus tells a parable, he's not just, he's not just out in the park telling a story. He's doing something totally subversive. He's doing something really, really sophisticated, and he's actually undermining the very structures that, that exist within their social culture. So that's huge if that's really what parables are doing. This makes all the difference in the world. Which brings me to question two. Why would Jesus be killed by the people he was killed by if his parables were just the the theological or if they were just moral? Think about this. Jesus is hung on a cross. By who? Politically, religiously, and socially powerful people. If Jesus is telling stories that are not subversive and that are not critiquing and undermining the structures in which they live in, no one would care. If he's just talking about morality and, and some far-off kingdom that nobody can really actually see, if that's what he's doing when he's telling a parable, he would not have been hung on a cross. But he was. Why? Because parables are subversive. Because they, un- they, they, they subvert and actually critique the very structures of our culture and our world. Is it possible, and this is where I want to go, is it possible to separate the parable that we read in Matthew from the gospel itself? Follow me here, gang. This is where I want to upend your apple cart a little bit. We read a story in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and it's the Bible, right? It's God's word. It's inspired. It's like, up here. Don't, Don't question it, right? It's up here. It's the Bible. Is it possible that even Matthew himself took source material, Jesus' actual parable that he told, and nuances it a little bit. I don't want to say, uh, like, co-opts it, because that's kind of, that's a mean word, right? But is it possible that Matthew took the source material and invested it with some meaning because of what he's trying to communicate in the gospel? Yes. It is absolutely possible, and I would argue that it's absolutely true, which is why we get, have you ever wondered why in one, one gospel you get a parable, and then in another gospel it's different, or somebody's left out, or somebody's added, right? We'll study one in a couple weeks. One, one parable says that one, one servant is sent three times, and they, they treat him meanly. One parable, one, one gospel says that a son, and a son, and a son, or, or a servant, 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 and then a son, and, and, and then a bunch of servants, a bunch of servants, a bunch of servants, and then a son. They're all different. Why? Because each gospel writer is doing something very particular and different. And so they take source material and they invest it with new meaning. So the question is, can we get behind the gospel itself? Can we get to the original parable that Jesus told? Well, that's a work that would take a long time, right? And a lot of research and a lot of reading. But I think that if we, if we begin to set this parable in its original context, it takes on all kinds of new meaning, and shatters all of the other interpretations I've ever heard before. So, buckle up. Are you ready? First century agrarian culture. If we're going to understand this parable, we have to understand this. I want to throw up that next slide for me, if you will. This is from a book that, that uh, is just blowing me away. Uh, it's called Parables as Subversive Speech. If you're interested, I can get you the title and, and author and that kind of stuff. This is agrarian culture. When Jesus, Okay, so if Jesus tells a parable... He tells a story. This is the context in which the hearers are coming from, right? If it's not theological, because gang, I mean, seriously, Jesus tells a parable, and we say, well, it's obviously about, uh, you know, last hour converts, right? The first, first hour workers, they would have, they, they, they've known Jesus all their lives in the 11th hour. <laughs> there is no 
way. Not a snowball's chance and you know what, that that's what Jesus meant when he told that parable. Do you want to know why? He's not dead yet. He hasn't even died on a cross. There is no Christianity. There is no converting to anything. So why would Jesus tell a parable to a group of people that meant that in that context? It's ridiculous. But if he did tell it into this context, then we get some serious answers to our questions. The governing class, these are the rulers. These are the rich, the powerful, the elite. Less than 5% of culture. These are the people who have all the power, all the wealth, all the money, and they run the whole show. Less than 5% of the culture. Coming down, you have a group of people. These are the, the, where the little apex comes, the governing class. These are what they call retainers, right? These are people who basically just uh, follow through with the will of the ruling class. So they're the people who actually do the dirty work. And these were often people who, who were Jewish, who kind of co uh, went the other way. They came over to the other side. You have people like Matthew, the tax collector. You have people like Zacchaeus, right? These are retainers. And they have some influence and power, but really it's they're puppets. They only do what the ruling class, the elite, tell them to do. They carry out their wills and wishes. And these are the people who would normally hang out with and deal with the peasants, right? Which is... The peasants and below and the expendables make up over 80% of this culture in this day and age. So this is the way the structure is. You have the ruling class, the elite, the retainers, and basically the peasants and all the expendables and everybody else. Now, let's identify some of the people in the parable. You have the landowner, right? The landowner. If I'm Jesus and I'm telling this parable in the first century and I say, a landowner, everybody's thinking, oh, that's got to be God. No, they're thinking these are the rich, the ruling, the elite. And more often than not, studies would say that the way these people got rich and the way they got their land was actually through predatory lending. Can you imagine that? We know nothing about that, right? Predatory lending. People who take advantage of others, and then when they can't follow through on the loan that they've signed for, they take their land. So the landowner is not a God figure. He's an oppressive, unjust punk. Who, who's a predator on peasants, right? These are peasant people who live on farms, and so they, they, they need money, they need something, and these people, the way that the ruling class amassed their wealth was through taking the land of the peasants. So they would go in on a loan, a deal with the peasant people. When the peasants couldn't follow through on their loan, they would take their land from them, and then they would farm it, and they would make more money. And guess who the workers would be? The people who used to own the land! So when a peasant goes into a loan with this re, re, the, the ruling class and they can't pay it back, they take their land and then they make them their slaves or worse yet, day laborers. They have no jobs. They are on the whim of the economy. They're, on the, they're, they're, they're subject to the whim of, of the harvest, which is why this guy has to go back to the market over and over again in this parable because it's a harvest, right? So this, the, the parable tells us in an, in an instant, like with one brush stroke, Jesus says this guy's a ruling elite class. He's a landowner. He's got a vineyard, which you, you, oh my gosh. It takes four years for, for any grapes to grow in a vineyard. So you've got to be wicked rich to be able to invest in a plot of land and grow something for four years with no profit. Not to mention the profit that you are going to get from the, from, the, from the grapes is actually for the ruling class, the elite, because who drinks wine? Only the people that can afford it. Now the retainers, the, the, this, and this is a trip. See, and this is where it gets really good. Jesus, he sets up this picture, and in a second when he tells the story, people are like, no way, snaps, you did not just say that. Why? The ruling class, the elite, would never, ever, ever talk with, have a social connection to, have an uh, interaction with who? These people right here, the expendables. 
These are the lowest of the low. And the day laborer was exactly that. So Jesus, in a moment, sets up this, he's telling a parable, right? It's not just a story. It's a subversive linguistic deal he's doing here. In a brushstroke, he sets up a a face-to-face interaction with a ruling elite landowner who goes to the market, would have never, ever done that. Who goes to the market? The retainers, the people who carry out the wills and actions of the, of the ruling class elite. So Jesus says, this guy, the landowner, goes and he meets with what, this guy, the, the, the expendable, the lowest of the low. Massive social uh, tension going on here. Oh, this is good stuff. I love this stuff. Um, okay, so that's the, that's, the, that's the culture, the setting. Now, let's read the parable again. And I want you to think through with some of these things. The landowner, the elite, the ruling class. The, the steward, the guy he sends, who he doesn't send at first, but who comes in the story later. That's who should have been going. And then you have these day laborers, these workers, who have been gypped. They've been ripped off. Their land has been taken from them. And now they're, at, they're, they're being subject to the, the ruling class elite, the guy that actually ripped them off. Snaps. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them, about, or sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you will also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again in the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out, found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing around all day? <laughs> Remember who's asking the question and who he's asking it to. Why have you been standing around all day? I took your land. Now I'm going to ask you why you're so lazy. Because no one had hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, now we're introduced to the retainer, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at the 11th hour came, each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, they, ex- they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius, and when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and they... S- and they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work and of the heat of the day. And But he answered one of them, not all of them, one of them. Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do with my own money what I want? Or are you envious because I am generous? A couple of things to point out through this new lens. First and foremost... The rich elite, he meets the day laborer. This would have never happened, ever, ever, ever. In a culture where elites are up here and the expendables are down here, this would have never happened. The retainer class always does this kind of work. Then he agrees to pay them a denarius, right? There's no, there's no arguing, or there's no negotiation here. You, and you see that in, in the third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hour people. He basically says, you're going to go work in my vineyard, and that's how it's going to be. Why? Because these guys have no choice. They are desperate They have no work, they're day laborers, and any job they can get is better than nothing, and so they just go. So they are absolutely dependent upon the same guy who has taken their land from them. Later in verse 4, he tells him, you'll work in my vineyard for whatever is right. 
So they're desperate. They're dependent on this guy. Then in verse 6, the irony. This is great. This guy is incredulous. He has the audacity to ask the people who he has taken the land from, why are you not working? Why are you standing around? Why are you lazy? This comes up again at the end, and this is really good stuff. Verse 8, he, he pays them last. He pays the last guys first and the first guys last. Now, this would have never happened in this culture. It would have never happened. If somebody comes, and, and it's because it's a culture of honor, and so if somebody works hard and they've been there all day, you pay them first. But the retainer's introduced and the landowner says, tell them to get in line backwards. Pay the guys who's have, who have been last, who worked the, the least amount, we're going to pay them first. Let me ask you this question. If you're in this position, your land's been taken, in a first century agrarian culture, what is the most important thing that you could possibly possess? It's not a true question. First century agrarian culture. What's important? Land. So it's gone, right? The most important thing to you and your family and, it's, and your subsistence has been taken and it's gone. So that's you. You have, you have next to nothing. What do you have left if all of your land's been taken and the things that are most important to you in, in providing your family? What do you have left? Like dignity, honor, Right? Everything that you, the only thing you have left is your own energy to make uh, any kind of money to provide for your family. So all that's left is your own dignity and your honor. And this guy has the audacity to pay the people who've worked the least first. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's an absolute slap in the face. It is total shaming of these people. So when Jesus tells this story and he says, here's how it shakes down, people are like, you are kidding me. This guy is an absolute you know, I mean, this is big. You got to get into the story because this is not just benign. We can't gloss over this. This is massive what he says. He takes the people who are despondent, desperate, dependent on him, and he takes their pride, their dignity, he takes it all away in an instant and pays the guys who worked less first. Then in verse 13, he calls them friend. Any lost friends? Any, anybody ever watched Lost before? Any lost people? No, not too many. A couple of you? Netflix it, Hulu, really good. There's one guy in like the fifth or sixth season of Lost, I'll introduce you to him, his name is Caesar. It was this guy. And he would, always, he would always say to people, he would say, my friend, I'm going to kill you, right? Or, my friend, I'm going to cut off your head and put you in a hole. My friend, I'm going to, it would be my friend and then some crazy thing that you would never ever do to a friend. And finally, at one point, John Locke, the other, one of the characters in the deal, he's like, um, I'm not going to do that and you're not my friend. And then he kills this guy. So he's only on there for a short part of, part of the season. But the deal is he calls everybody my friend. He says, my friend, oh, this, my friend, that. This is the kind of language this guy uses. So he's talking to the people, he's taking their land, he's taking everything from them. And then he says, friend, okay? It's like condescending. It's like this, this just... Ah! You just want to scream. Oh, hey, friend. And he uses one of two words, one of which would have been like a social peer, and the other which is like this. Like, hey, friend, I'm talking to you down there. That's the word he uses. And the last part, I, he says, do I not have the right to do with, do with my money whatever I wish? Guys, in a Jewish culture, Jesus is a Jew. He's talking to mostly Jewish people. We don't know if this landowner is Jewish, but it's very highly likely that he was. There is something called the debt code in the Old Testament, and the debt code provided a way, provided a means, it provided an, a safety valve for the wickedness of humanity 
that, that it wouldn't be a runaway train. It was basically this idea that every seven years, debts were canceled. Every 50 years, like all the prisoners were set free. You let the land lay fallow every seven. So there was this debt code that didn't allow for people to oppress one another to the degree that you would take the land of all these people and you'd have this super, super rich ruling class and all these other people who were expendable and dependent on them. Okay? There was a safety valve that that wouldn't happen because that's the nature of the human heart, wickedness and deceit. So this guy says, do I not have the right to do what I want with my money? The people around him would have been like, hey, knucklehead, don't you know the debt code of Deuteronomy and Leviticus? Yahweh owns everything, and we are all in debt to Yahweh. He's the giver of everything. And if you really knew what you were talking about, you would never do this because every seven years you'd give back the land that you've taken. The, the, the insulting nature of the question is absolutely unbelievable. So, my friends, <laughs> and I mean that, let me wrap this up and see if we can p- pull a few strings together here. Parables, not just stories, subversive, often politically charged moments that Jesus speaks into culture and subverts it. Why? One simple question, why does Jesus tell the parable he does and does, what does it tell us about God? If we get a glimpse, when Jesus tells a parable, if we get a glimpse of God's heart, what is growing in God's heart when we, when we try to understand the original story in its original context? I would say that you could probably, you'd be on safe ground to say that Jesus does not approve of oppression and injustice. There are ways in which we participate in oppressing others and injustice as humans, and we do it, people have done it all through the ages. And I think we would be on very safe ground to say that when Jesus tells this parable, he's speaking directly into that context. So for you and I, one thing and this missional focus on hunger is one of the ways that we're trying to put ourselves in touch with the ways that we do this even without thinking about it. Because this is not the way of the kingdom. Jesus is speaking into a culture and he's calling out the people who are oppressing and and speaking and acting unjustly. And I think it's fair to say that that's what we should be thinking about. Those are things that should be challenging us as well. I think we could probably say that deceit is very subtle. Verses 14 and 15, it's this guide. Take your pay and go. The last, uh, I want to give to the last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what I have? It's very subtle, but we begin to think that these things are mine, and the work of my hand is actually the reason why I have the things that I have. If I work hard enough, if I just put in my time, if I do the things that are asked of me, if I do this and I do that, then the outcome will be success and this and that and the other thing. And we forget very subtly and very quickly that Yahweh is the owner of it. God is the creator. He is the sustainer of it all. And he invites us into the the process of living and working and stewarding this world. But when we forget that he's the owner, that Yahweh is the one who gives, and we think, don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Danger Will Robinson. Very, very difficult spot to be. And I would say, lastly, kind of back to where we started. What we're after, friends, when we read the scriptures, what we're after is the living God behind the scriptures. Okay, this book... It's, it's absolutely critical. It is imperative. It is important. Don't hear me saying that I don't think the Bible's true or right or, you know, God's inspired. I'm not saying any of that. 
But I am saying that sometimes when we think about this, we think that this is it. And that all the stories we'd ever need to hear are in here. And I'm telling you, they're not. There are stories that your lives are supposed to or could be told with that, that, that God is inviting us into. I went to a wedding the other day, and I was, it was this beautiful picture. It was this idea that God is a master storyteller, and he's told all these stories in here and others. And there's a story right here in front of us between these two people that is yet to be told about love and about connection and about oneness and about unity. And we have the opportunity to live into that and be a part of what God's doing and live into God's story. But that story's not told, and you can't find it in here. Can God be revealed through that story? Absolutely. Can and does God reveal himself through this? Yes. What we're after, though, is the God behind the scriptures. These are special because God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the scriptures and with the scriptures. What's important for us to remember is what we're after, what we long for, what we want more of is Jesus, God, the living God behind the scriptures. Not the scriptures themselves. Very subtle, very nuanced, but super, super important, in my opinion. Because I think sometimes things like communion, things like baptism, things like church, the Bible, these things can get in the way of what we're really after, what's behind communion, what communion represents, what baptism represents, the realities that we're talking about. And I'm just going to ask you to spend some time thinking about the things that we've heard, the things that we've talked about, uh, where, where the Holy Spirit is moving in the midst of this for you. Because there's not one point here. There's not, uh, you know, one, two, three bullet point. That's not what we're doing, not what I'm doing today, obviously. But I trust that God's Spirit's at work and that there's something here for each of us. And so I'm just going to invite you to take some time to, to think, to contemplate, uh, to ask the Lord, what is this? What, what's in here for me today, God? Uh, and then in just a moment, I'll ask you to come and participate in communion. So if you would, just think for a moment, and then uh, we'll give some instructions on communion.